we got some jauntily askew glasses. We've got yeah. hat to the side, snapping yeah. fingers. <laughs> we are we are ready. We are ready to poetry. <laughs> Welcome to the next episode of Fantastically Strange. I am so delighted and so thrilled to have you here for the second episode into the second season for the official episode number. Uh, you can look at the info and it is right there. Uh, but as promised at the end of season one, we are doing some more interviews. I was really excited with the interview with the Pipsqueakery last time, and I wanted to work that in for season two. And so here we are. I have with me upon this glorious day, uh, Shane Signorino, who is a, a real life living poet, um, amongst many other things as well. And uh, in honor of last month being National Poetry Month, I thought, yo, why not bring a, a real life poet in and um, and speak to him? So that is what we are doing for this episode. And uh, as a real quick reminder, the full video to this is actually going to be up on the Patreon. So if you would like access to that and to also help support the uh, the podcast and other things as well, for only a dollar a month, you too can head on over to patreon.com slash rocketfox and see all of the beautiful faces involved in this week's podcast. Well, this couple weeks, because for season two, I'm doing every couple weeks uh, so that I can bring you a little more for every episode. Real quick going in as well, just based on the fact that I know this person and he is wonderful and I adore him and uh, I, I kind of have a sense on where this conversation is going to go. I'm going to go ahead and put out a little bit of a uh, content warning. Nothing totally scandalous, but um, <laughs> if, there, if there are any younger folks around or parents of younger folks around, uh, just, just be aware that maybe there might be some content. Uh, Shane, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us more. <laughs> Tell us about you. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Rocket Fox is a badass. And, oh, I, no. oh, and no. I absolutely adore her. And uh, I'm lucky enough to like, you know, be friends with such a creative soul. So uh, I am Shane Signorino. And uh, uh, I was named after a cowboy movie uh, where uh, it, the final line was like, Shane, come back, Shane. You know, so if you know that movie, that's what I was named after. My mom had a sincere crush on the guy playing the main cowboy, Alan Ladd. So there you go. And uh, uh, I have a master's in English and uh, one in theater. And I teach both at SIUE. And uh, my, my primary focus with my master's in English was poetry writing. Uh, I've been writing poetry now for like 25, maybe 30 years and uh, it is something I, I absolutely love. And I've just started to get back into the actual like diligent writing practice. And part of my, you know, getting back to that diligent writing practice is having connected with Fox. 
because Fox is a fabulous writer. I've gotten to experience some of her writing and it's kind of sparked more writing ideas for me. So there you go. Oh, I'm also in theater. Yes. Did I say that? No. Yep. I'm in theater. I do a lot of, I do a lot of theater in St. Louis. Um, I, primarily. I believe you're actually directing something right now. If I'm not Yes. I am directing a, a piece of poetry actually uh, uh, based off of uh, Beowulf where uh, the monster Grendel, it's all about his mother and how his mother saw everything that went down in Beowulf. And it's, it's essentially, it's essentially like a parallel universe to taking down the patriarchy. So it's, it's really cool. The poetry is fabulous. I'm hoping that I can, you know, con Fox into coming to see it. And, uh, and it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, (laughs) gorgeous poetry. Absolutely gorgeous poetry. So yeah, that's me. Oh, I love animals. I've got a bunch of them and uh, motorcycles. Okay, cool. Let's do this. (laughs) And I, I do have to say, uh, the piece is called, uh, feast if I'm correct. Feast. Yes. Feast. Yeah. And it's about, uh, so what happens is Grendel's mother welcomes the audience into a dinner party where she's going to essentially convince everyone to go out and murder the patriarchy. If you want to, if you want to break it down to like two sentences, that's the play. I believe I feel very strongly for this. Uh, I, I already side with this, this mother and yeah, I'm there. I'm there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. And so uh, just, for anybody who happens to be in the area, which is St. Louis, Missouri, by the way, um, who might be hearing this beforehand, when does this go up? This goes up on June 11th, and it's at the Dot Zach, which is a really cool like uh, arts incubator building in uh, St. Louis, like pretty pretty close to downtown. It's like, and uh, it's it's lovely. It's absolutely lovely. If you just if you just Google Feast and Metro Ticks, it'll take you to Metro Ticks to get uh, to get your tickets. That is awesome. So, yes, everybody, I hope that you have, my loves, your your snapping fingers ready, your berets askew jauntily to the side, your beatnik spirits here within your, your very, very souls. I went to college for art, you know, which... You can't really tell, Fox. You really can't tell. What? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I would have thought you went for finance. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, my bank account says differently. Um, <laughs> so, uh, going to school for art is, it's very different than I imagine, you know, uh, the written arts would be. There's a lot of different kind of pursuits that go into that. But when I think of poetry, when in my mind's eye, I envision going to school for poetry, I think of, and let me ask you this real quick before I go on with my vision. Where yes. did you go? I went to SIUE and then I went to Sierra Nevada College out in uh, California. Okay, very, very poetic spaces. Um, So I envision poetry college as being like immediately they hand you just like a stack of black clothing, like, you know, you you must don the uniform. You you get handed your, your journal that you yeah. write all of your thoughts in. That you sit in the corner of a bar and, you know, quietly, like... Oh, well, those are the classrooms. The classrooms are all oh, dark sorry. corners. Oh, like, <laughs> every 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 desk is just a dark corner with a uh, with a bar <laughs> stool in it. And you just sit there un- until you graduate. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. You're, so, you're not far off with most most grad schools in poetry. You're not far off. Okay, so, so, so since I'm exactly correct... Um, yes. Tell me though about your experience. Like, what was your specialty? I mean, did you have to specialize in in a 
poetry, uh, a house of poetry, like a poetry house? Like, do you have houses of like son, ho house sonnet, um, house iambic <laughs> pentameter, <laughs> house haiku? Like. Well, see, that that's the thing, Fox, and I think you, you probably experienced this. I, I mean, I don't know. Where did you go to art school again? Um, so I, I started a community college. I went yeah. for a couple of years and then I, then I roamed the wild streets in a, in a rock and roll band. <laughs> no, I, I know, I know. I was wild, wild child, wild child. And then I, but then I went oh. back then I went back and I went to, um, Washington university in St. Louis. And then I finished up in, um, the, uh, graphic communication or communication design, which was their kind of co graphic okay. design and illustration track, which, yeah. which honestly, for the art program was much more, here's how you write a contract. Here's how you contact the editors at different magazines. Like, you know I mean? So it was more focused on, yo, you want to make a living with this, right? So this is how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's cool. I, well, uh, I mean, the, the, the reason I was asking you that Fox is like, mm -hmm. I don't know if you felt like wherever you went was, a you know, because I know like some schools, whether it be poetry, whether it be art, whether it be theater, whatever, they're, they're kind of constrictive in their pedagogy. You know, they teach mm -hmm. you like very strictly, you know, like, like, for instance, when I went to Penn State for acting and all they did was teach Meisner. It was, you know, it was almost like oh. a cult, you know, okay. and like, that's what I appreciated about SIUE and Sierra Nevada was that they both both schools like allowed you to find your own way you know okay. and uh and so like to answer your question about the houses of poetry we were given you know like tours through all the houses you know and oh. then and then you get to kind of like you know establish it's all about essentially like like refining your own voice refining mm -hmm. your own poetic voice finding it refining it and uh and just growing comfortable with it you know and so what I loved about SIUE and Sierra Nevada is I got to take a wide array of classes. I wasn't really constricted into, you know, like I took a creative nonfiction class, which I, I felt really helped my poetry because, you know, a lot of my poetry has a certain amount of narrative to it, you know, and I thought that helped. I took a fiction writing class. I took, you know, like you got to take pretty much anything you wanted. The reason I chose those two schools is I just lucked out that SIUE got Adrian Matika and Stacy Lynn Brown because they were like rock star poets that came to SIUE out of nowhere. And I was like, holy shit, I want, you know, I want to study with those people, you mm -hmm. know, and then like Sierra Nevada, like I, I, I talked to you one time about my, uh, uh, my Korean poet friend, Lee Herrick. Yes, he, taught, yes, yeah, yes. he taught at Sierra Nevada mm -hmm. and Brian Turner, who's a, the coolest poet in the world. Okay. Just quick little story about Brian Turner, who was yeah. like the, who was uh, essentially the, the head poetry guy at Sierra Nevada still is. He, uh, you know, he got his MFA in poetry and then nine 11 happened and he decided to sign up, you know, for the military, like a lot of people did. And he also had a, he had, he had a family that, you know, had been in the military for generations. So he always felt kind of guilty. So he went ahead and did it. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's over there. They made him a squad leader over in Afghanistan. He's over there. And, uh, and I thought this was this, like, I will never, ever be able to like form an excuse for like, oh, I can't write because I don't feel well. Oh, I can't write because I don't this or whatever. This man <laughs> wrote an entire book of poetry that won awards called Hear Bullet, like, you know, tempting the bullet to come to him, you know, by the red light of the scope of his rifle at night like when it was dark, wow. that's how he composed every poem that was in that book, you know? And I asked him, I was like, well, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you write during the day and whatnot? He's like, Shane, 
no, no, no military people want to take a hill with a guy who's a poet, you know, <laughs> you know, so he wanted to keep that like he wanted to keep that to himself that he was a poet. So that's that's how he wrote that whole fucking book. Wow. And it's, and it's absolutely phenomenal book of poetry. It's one of my favorites. It's absolutely amazing. Very visceral very guttural just ah oh, and he yeah sorry i could go on and on about no that. that's phenomenal. But, uh, but yes like you know like i think that's the that's the way to do it with like if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna go to graduate school for writing is to find the graduate schools where your hero poets are teaching and go mm -hmm. to those schools you know mm -hmm. uh like when i when i went to sierra nevada also patricia smith was a poet and she I, she was seriously my favorite poet in the language. Uh, she and she was also a performance poet, so she was a three-time uh, uh, slam poetry champion uh, for the world. I mean, she was fucking phenomenal. She's yeah. a black woman who did a who did a performance piece called Skinhead, where she took on the persona of a skinhead. It was just amazing. But anyway, that is that is what I would recommend for people looking into going to poetry school: is just find your heroes and go there. You know. You know, I mean, yeah. it might not be that simple, <laughs> oh, sure. but, you know, at least apply there or whatever. And also finding schools that like allow you to find your own way. Cause you know, like you don't want to sound like this poet or that poet or whatever. You want to sound like yourself, you know, you want to establish an authentic voice. So, you know, that, I mean that, I think that that speaks very similarly to um, just kind of the experience of art school, visual art school as well. Yeah. Um, just in that all of the professors that I had, um, were currently working, working creators and graphic designers as well that I, yes. were pretty noted in their fields that were continually doing things yes. that that I think makes a tremendous difference. Staying current with what's going on, uh, you know, as far as visual stuff goes, staying current with trends and, and yes. you know, methodologies and things like that. Yeah. Um, but what's well, the difference between like, you know, there was a, uh, you know, because I, I think that's especially true with the, like theater graduate schools. You know, mm -hmm. you want you want teachers that are still directing, that are still acting, that are still, mm -hmm. you know, for one, they'll get they'll they'll you know you'll establish connections through them much better, you know, mm -hmm. that way. And uh, and also just like you said, like remaining fresh and what you know, because like there was <laughs> there was a lighting designer person at SIUE who hadn't worked as a lighting designer for like. 20 years or something, you know, and she was still teaching and she was still teaching the method from the late seventies. <laughs> oh no. I imagine that lighting design has changed a significant amount. A little bit. <laughs> I, I, I believe that we have things that are now automated. Yes. And there's these whole things called LEDs, you know, that whoa. like, <laughs> whoa, 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 sir. I'm going to need you to slow down. Um, <laughs> hold up hold so up I, I, th I think that that is a very good point though fox is like you want to have your your mentors or the people that you're learning from like very passionately in their fields mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. that's all that's always beneficial yeah and and uh if i if i am also not mistaken you you do have some published works yes i do I, I do i was i was really diligent my my thesis advisor was very proud of me because i published a lot of poems before i even graduated i just started sending them out said "Fuck it you know and, I, and I, for any poets out there that's what i would say to do you know don't second guess yourself don't let the censor voice tell you that you suck don't you know think that oh this this journal is too prestigious or whatever you never know you never know it's very similar to auditioning you know you you can audition and not get a role and you will never know why 
you know, it's very similar to like submitting for poetry journals, you know, don't, don't beat, you know, don't beat yourself up, just move on to the next one. I know that's easier said than done, but there is that adage out there that you're not a poet until you've got your first 99 rejection notices, you know, oh, so don't worry about it. You're going to get rejected. There's no, you know, just know that and accept it. And then you don't have to worry about it, you know? And, uh, uh, but yeah, I've got, I'm going to start sending like, what was weird is once I finished my, once I finished my, my thesis, which was a, 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 a book of poems, that was your thesis. You had to write a book of poems. Um, I, uh, my thesis advisor was trying to get me to submit the whole book for publication, uh -huh. but I never, I never got around to doing that because I was struggling with some personal issues for many mm -hmm. years. And now those personal issues are getting handled. And so I'm going to go back to trying to get my poems published. So really, well, that's yeah, exciting. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. And uh, I wrote a poem about this lady recently. I might try to get published. That's exciting. <laughs> I'm sure she's very interested to hear more about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't so, make that awkward, did I? No, not no. at all. <laughs> um, so as far as your own journey with finding your own voice, yeah. what I, I know just and and it just so happens that I feel like the the paths are a little intertwined between, you know, poetry and I imagine a lot of other writing and the visual arts. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like I can interject a little here and there um, just with my own kind of experiences. But like yes. it's a journey uh, yes. fi finding one's own visual <laughs> voice and style and yeah. something that really feels like, oh, this represents the whole yeah. of me. <laughs> um, well, I, I would say you've done that fairly well, because like it like I could, you know, like, you know, like what, what, what I tell my my uh, writing students or even like English 101 and 102, like when when they're really on, I can I can read their essay and go, oh, that's a that's a Fox essay. Oh, that's a, ah. that's a that's a that's a Steve essay or oh, that's a you know, and like with your with your visual art, like I can see a piece of art and go, that's Fox. You know, like you have, Thank you. you have your own style, you know, that I think is, that is, that is absolutely amazing. Thank you. And, uh, Thank but yes, it is, it is totally a journey. Deliberate, you know, though, I mean, it takes, it takes work, you know, yes. like, and even yeah. now though, I, I, there, I definitely do feel like there's still an amount that's like, oh, how, how far do I veer off? Is that still legible as my own and things yeah. like that? And just in your own experiences as finding your own voice, because I've, I've had the great opportunity and honor to read a, a couple of your pieces uh, that are amazing. Um, and you do have this particular way about writing that is just really very dynamic and very full. And the word usage is just really um, fantastic. And for, for anyone listening or any of the patrons watching, I will have uh, one of Shane's magnificent and wonderful pieces up on the website. So. Oh. Feel free to, the link will be in the show notes, but feel free to take a look. It is wonderful. But what has your journey been like in finding kind of that voice that represents you? I, I went through many stages, you know, like the, when I first started writing, po I mean, I was a closet poet through high school. I never let anyone know that I was writing poetry because I was the quarterback. I was the football guy. I was the, you know, all that stuff. And so I just kind of, you know, wrote my own little bit of like confessional kind of poetry, like very Sylvia Plath, very, uh, a secret beret. Yes. 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 Very beret kind of, you know, journal black clothing kind of, <laughs> yes, very, 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 very much. So, and then, um, I, I, uh, I started going to poetry readings 
And that was a, that was a huge influence on, on my writing because like the poetry readings that I went to were more like what I would say, like more like festival kind of things were like, you know, someone would get up with a saxophone and play a solo. Someone would get up with a, you know, there was this one time there was this guy came in. I'll never forget this called the, called the great white hunter. And he was, he was dressed in all camo you know, and like, I mean, completely camo makeup and everything on his face. And he played, he, he had a tape recorder and he played a, a poem of his that he, you know, was that he had recorded in the tape recorder into the mic and just stood there. And it was brilliant. It was absolutely That's brilliant. wild. And, uh, yeah. Or, or one, one night I was at a poetry and this guy like started doing his poem and it was amazing. It was phenomenal work. And then he just had a total mental breakdown and, and like threw the microphone stand and started throwing chairs and we had to escort him out and whatnot. But anyway, Whoa. So like, you know, like taking all of those crazy influences and whatnot from poetry readings really had had an effect on me. And I started to think about poems more sonically than I did, like, you know, actually just on the page, you know, because that was something, too, that like I blame poets for the fact that most people find poetry fucking boring because they typically when they do their readings, they get up there and they fall into that poetic like lilt kind of thing. I went to the store and I bought an orange and I did a duh. And it's like, who the fuck wants to listen to that? <laughs> would, like, you say, I, would you say it's similar to how uh, some people approach reading Shakespeare? Yes. Performing? Is that how yes. you might say that is? <laughs> yes. It's like, you know, like with Shakespeare, typically what you would do, you know, the typical Shakespearean method would be mm -hmm. to like, oh, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to do the scansion with the iambic pentameter and da, da, da. Well, and, and, and let us not forget the Shakespeare voice. Yes, yeah, yeah. like the like the when I first came back to theater six years ago, and the first audition I did was for Richard III, and I got paired up with a lady that was doing a terrible British dialect. <laughs> just and there was and the British dialect wasn't asked for in the audition, just because she thought that's what Shakespeare should have. You know, mm -hmm. it's like oh my god, mm -hmm. and uh, um, but yeah, t typically poets, you know, they like. For instance, I, I invited a, a, my theater mentor to come see me read at a, I was, I was the featured reader at Chance Operations in St. Louis, which used to be an amazing poetry series. And it, was, it happened to be on my birthday. And so, yeah. it, so I invited my mentor to come and uh, he was a retired theater teacher and he did private lessons, you know, like monologue work, stuff mm -hmm. like that. And so at, at the end of the reading, he came up to me and gave me a big hug. And he was like, thank you for using your words, Shane, because none of the rest of these poets know how to fucking use their words. And it's tragic because they love words and they write words and they're obsessed with words, but they don't know how to use them. So he went around and like handed his card to every other poet. That was there. <laughs> <laughs> nice work. Nice work. I think you can use this. Uh, I can help you out. <laughs> but poetry doesn't have to be the stagnant, you know, mm -hmm. like dusty, you know, it just, it, it's much more kinetic than that. It's like mm -hmm. you said, it's much more dynamic than that. And so like when I'm writing, I try to bring all of that into my poems. You know, I try to like make it a sonic experience. I try to make it a very guttural experience. I try to throw in, you know, I use a lot of pop culture references. I use a lot of dialogue. I use a lot of characters, you mm -hmm. know, um, I just think a lot of times poets write poetry for other poets. And what the fuck is the point of that? You know what I mean? We should be making this art to share with others, you know, that are outside of the poetry circle. It reminds me of like people that do theater for other theater people. It's like, no, stop. You know, well, you know, or, or even um, I remember going and seeing 
at a certain point when you see some jazz performances that get so intellectual that it's like i don't this is this has ceased to be aesthetically pleasing at all yes yes there's okay there's a there's a company in town which will remain nameless but they do <laughs> they do they do a lot of like really experimental stuff like a lot of experimental theater that involves a lot of poetry and whatnot but mm -hmm. there's only like seven people in the city that get any of it so like <laughs> you know the rest of you know the rest of you know the tri the tri-city area don't get a damn thing they're doing so i'm like what's the point if you're just going to stroke each other off why why are we doing this you just know get a room but exactly i find the same thing in the poetry verse you know mm. that you see a lot of you know poets that just write poetry for other poets and you need a phd to enjoy the poem you know and and again like i I want to write, like, I, I, I came up with this analogy not terribly long ago, but I want to write poems that my dad can enjoy. And my dad is a, is a Harley rider, truck driver, Marine, who I've tried to push books on him for 30 years, and the only thing I can get him to read is anything on Cardinal's history or Harley's. That's it. You know? <laughs> and so I want him to be able to read my poem and get something out of it, or him be able to come see one of my plays and get something out of it and not just feel fucking confused you know, the whole time, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. But I think that does, I think that begs a very interesting line that is continually tread in a lot of different art spheres yeah. between how experimental is still, the first word that comes to my mind is useful, yeah. <laughs> you know, versus um, playing it safe, venturing back into the idea of theater and what, what types of plays get put on all the time, you know, there's, Certainly, uh, there, you know, the local area that we're in right now has a, a healthy number of theater companies, I would say, that, Very. you know, you, but you tend to see a lot of the same shows get put Boring. on, <laughs> you know, yeah. and like, there, some of them are shows that have been put on for the past Oh God, more than 50 years now, I would yeah. say. If I see um, another Tennessee Williams play, I'm gonna stab my fucking face. Sorry, I keep uh, cursing. If I see another Tennessee Williams play, I'm gonna stab out my eyeballs. Your fucking eyeballs, it's okay. <laughs> you know, but like when, and I believe we had this conversation before where there's, um, you know, you, you could put on another Tennessee Williams piece or alternatively, there is a, play I had become privy to recently that is written by an Asian playwright. It's called okay. The Brothers Paranormal. Oh, it yeah. is about an African-American couple that has a haunted house that is being investigated by an Asian brother uh, duo that investigates paranormal things. Yeah. And I'm oh. like, yo, where where is this being put on? Exactly. You know? And there, we, there are actually a, a number of Asian <laughs> myself included, but Asian yeah. uh, acting individuals in the area. Um, yeah, I think one of the best one of the best musical actors in our town. Uh, I shouldn't call him a musical actor because he he does. You know, I hate that term straight play. He does regular plays or whatever you know. Um, and, he does uh, real live theater. Yeah, acting, <laughs> acting, and uh, um, he uh, his name is Kevin Corpus, and he is. Mm -mm fucking phenomenal and he would be ripe for that kind of play you know and uh um it, it's like uh, there i i had to take over a directing class this semester and i was introduced to this play called barbecue which is written by uh by uh, by a uh, uh african-american 
and is just absolutely phenomenal. And it it's it's about addiction, and you used and it's hilarious. I mean, it's hard to make addiction funny, but he does it. Hey. And it's uh, and uh, <laughs> and what and it, what's amazing about it is it uses it uses two casts. In the first act, you have a, an all white cast, and then the second act, you have an all black cast, and they play the same people, and it is just brilliant. I mean, I, I have no, I rarely read it because anyone out there that reads plays, they're not meant to be read, so they're not mm-hmm. exactly a wonderful reading experience. Mm-hmm. But with barbecue, I literally was crying and laughing like hysterically, and that's the kind of stuff we need to see on stage. That's the kind of stuff we need to see on the page with poetry. Is like you know. Mm-hmm. Not this antiquated, like we were just talking about cat on a hot tin roof, stage Christ. That was pertinent for the 50s when it was written, you know. Now, (laughs) it's not like things from the past can't still be pertinent. We have have a lot of things that are present and also very pertinent, (laughs) you know, and and deserve uh, a spotlight, especially considering the the authors and playwrights and poets are... Well, I don't know, still alive for one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. saying things about current experiences that are happening. Well, I always tell you know, my students always ask me, you know, like, so why do we do Shakespeare still? And I, you know, the way the way and I think you just hit the nail on the head is like Shakespeare deals in universal themes. And so like that never gets old. You know, love, loss, betrayal, jealousy, da 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 da. You know, like he deals in universal themes. So that, you know, what what the characters were experiencing in Shakespeare, we're still experiencing now, you know, but like some of these, uh, it's just, it's just so relegated to the time period when it was written that like transferring it to not like we just do it over and over and over just because they're established pieces. And I'm like, screw that, mm-hmm. you know, and especially in a town like St. Louis, like I've always said with smaller market towns, you know, like let, we're none of us are going to make a, a full on living with this shit. So let's throw caution to the wind and mm-hmm. do some really good, crazy theater, you know, mm-hmm. similar with poetry. I don't disagree. Well, you know, uh, one thing that you had said, staying on topic, but veering a little bit, <laughs> taking a, a little bit of a turn, um, just what you had said about when you were reading Barbecue and that plays not necessarily meant to be fully enjoyed whilst being read. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's a couple times on my stream where I've had uh, both this year and last year poetry reading events for National Poetry Month. I I came to realize with that and just with my own practice that I kind of feel that way about a lot of poetry. And you had uh-huh. mentioned this. I wanted to emphasize that as well, that, you know, it's it's one thing to read poetry quietly and in your head, but you don't get that same experience. You don't get the same experience when you actually speak it aloud and let yeah. and let your mouth have the actual visceral experience of speaking the words and them landing on your ear. It's just, it's very different. Oh yeah. Oh yes. And uh, you know, I think one of the, one of the best examples I can give you of like, you know, how different reading a poet and then hearing that poet can be is uh, uh, Amiri Baraka. He was a, he was a, he was a black Panther revolutionary poet guy. Uh, he was originally, for those you know history buffs out there, he was originally Leroy Jones. Then he took on Amiri Baraka, and he wrote a, an amazing play called Dutchman. But he was primarily a, a poet, and he was a hero of mine for years. And uh, this guy, when I got to see him finally, was like this close to death. I mean, he was late eighties, all this stuff, and he was a tiny little man. And uh, 
And, you know, and, and like reading his poems are very, they're very sonic, they're very kinetic and it's wonderful. But like when I went to see him, you know, perform, he, 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 he came out onto the stage and was walking up to the podium. And I was like, he, he's not going to be able to stand up for that length of time. I mean, he was so feeble, like getting across the stage and up yeah. to the podium and like, duh, duh. and then when he started reading his poetry, like all of those physical ailments disappeared. And this guy was the most compelling poet I've ever seen read live. Wow. It was like the most kinetic experience I've ever seen with poetry from yeah. a tiny near death, 80,000 year old man, you know? And, right. uh, you know, and so it, it would be like, you know, watching Yoda, walk into a poetry reading and then just absolutely, you know, like when, uh, in poetry Attack Yoda done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you remember in Attack of the clones when he actually got to have his lightsaber fight? Oh yes, he, yes, yes. It, it was very similar to Mary Baraka. You know, he, you know, if, if a Mary could have, he'd be spinning in circles with a lightsaber, you know, it was, it was absolutely phenomenal. That's, and so that's not what happens at all. Poetry. Really? <laughs> I don't understand this. this I wish it would. <laughs> we get a lot more people coming, but, but again, I go back to that, you know, cause like a lot of people, you know, a lot of my poet friends complain about how like, Oh no, you know, cause like other countries have much more respect and reverence for poetry. Like for, in Brazil, for instance, every year, there's a the strictly poetry event that sells out a soccer stadium that seats 250,000 people. Oh wow. They 250,000 Brazilians every year come to hear poetry, you know. Can you imagine that in the states? No. But Brazilian poets are fucking fantastic. You know, they're they're the, I mean not just on the page, but when, yeah. but when they when they read, they read with a certain amount of passion and da -da -da -da. Yeah. I blame the lackluster love for poetry in our country on the actual poets. I don't blame it on the, you know, the citizenry, you know. Well, um, and I, I, I blame the education system too. There's that. <laughs> you know, not poetry college, poetry wizarding with all the different houses. Um, but, you know, but I think, I think there is a, a degree to which, no, not a degree. I'll, I'll flat out say it. Younger ages of school to where the creativity is just strangled out of you yes you know i think where it's just you the focus is on the that's me agreeing with you fox the the, the core quote unquote uh non-creative pursuits and value is not placed on these creative ideals um, I, th I think dingus uh, uh, agreed with you because he just clawed the hell out of my knee sorry oh sorry, no but but <laughs> Which, Dingus is uh, Jane's cat, who is adorable and also has been singing a chorus of agreements in the background. <laughs> um, he has he has such a cute meow, though. Yes, yes, and, and he like he likes to he likes to expose anyone he can to that meow. He's he's a bit of a talker, kind of like this guy. Uh, and including I, from what I understand, he likes to expose that meow. At, at like what two in the morning three in the morning two two three is his most talkative time ah yeah, yes yeah. and uh, the the night talker yes that back in my pretentious poet days when i thought you could only write poetry at two or three in the morning you know see i think maybe this is this is this is my uh, karma coming back here uh, you know? but you are so right though about like the creativity being strangled out of young writers because I, I found that especially to be true teaching english 101 and 102 at, at siue because mm. I run those classes like they're creative writing classes. I probably shouldn't, but I don't care. 
I got to, I got to make it exciting for me or the kids aren't going to be excited, you know? Mm -hmm. So like whenever I've had this happen every single semester with a number of students where like, you know, I'm working with them in a student conference and I'm like, Oh my God, you're, you know, this passage is amazing. Or like, you know, the metaphor you're using here is phenomenal. You've got some talent here and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I hear this all the time. I've never ever been told that I'm a decent writer even, you know, like writing teachers in like the younger stages, you know, like in middle school and high school, I, I, I would really like to have a have a conference with all of them. You know, <laughs> you, I think you mean a conference. I'm waving my fist in the air. Yes. A conference. Yes. With all of them. yes. Well, and it's like, you know, they, they do. They make writing so tedious. They make it so like, you know, like the, the, the kids feel like their grades are on the chopping block, you know, like, mm-hmm. like what I do is I, as I, I structure my classes to where I, and I tell them this on the first day, you know, I'm like, you know, if you, if you just show up and participate and put a little effort into it, you'll get a great grade. Don't worry about your grade. Please mm-hmm. stop worrying about your grade. You know, there's mm-hmm. much that we have, we have much larger concerns than your grade, but like they're, they're made to just constantly worry about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, during their young writing career. Something that I, I'm hoping is going to change, and I think it's like with this up-and-coming generation that's way smarter than mine, and that is, you know, like having, like, you know, like sex ed at an earlier age and things like that. And it's like poets as well. Instead of like being afraid to introduce them to poets like Allen Ginsberg, which have, you know, drug references or sex references mm-hmm. or whatnot, but those are poets that kids are going to like. like i saw the best minds of my generation starving hysterical naked that's his opening line to how if that doesn't draw you in you know what i mean like it's much better than like reading i'm sorry but like robert frost or you know these typical poets boring listen sir i have a i have a frost quote tattooed on my sides but i love i mean i do love some robert frost i'm just saying there are other poets out there fox you know, the oh, weekend. hey, listen, I've got another side right here, right here, okay. ready, ready to right. get some other poetry on. <laughs> <laughs> Kids are way smarter and way more advanced intellectually than we think they are. You know, mm-hmm. like there's there's a school in St. Louis when I was working at a Left Bank Books, a cool bookstore in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. There's a, a school. These these like 13 year olds were coming in and buying uh, Angels in America, which is a lovely, yeah. lovely, crazy play. You know, mm-hmm. won the Pulitzer in 93. And I was eventually after a number of them came in, I was like, what, what is this for? And it was for a seventh grade, like drama class. Wow. And I was like, you typically wouldn't be exposed to angels in America till you got to college, you know? Yeah. And, and yet, can, you, can you give a real quick couple sentence synopsis, angels in America? Yes. Okay. So is this, it's a, uh, it's set in 1980s, New York when Ronald Reagan uh, was basically ignoring the AIDS crisis and saying that it was essentially relegated to just homosexuals. Right. So it's the, it's these, it's this group, but you know, it centers around the main guy. I, I was in the show and it centers around the main guy prior who is a drag queen who is dying of AIDS and like how that affects his inner circle. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, I mean, Tony Kushner, the playwright is a poet. I mean, he writes poetry. So like it, it is insanely poetic. It is insanely mm-hmm. heartbreaking. I mean, there's a there's a character called Mr. Lies, which is a total hallucination from another character called Harper, who is overdosing on uh, on pills. And so she's constantly hallucinating. And so this character just kind of pops in and out. An angel comes barreling through the ceiling at the end of the play and, and blows shit up. I mean, it is it is crazy, but just wonderful. And kids love it. 
<laughs> because well, it's, it's not it's important. Like it's yes, like even yes. from a historical perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, and again, like kids are able to handle a lot more than I think we are, we ever give them credit for, you know, you know, like, we, I mean, we, we, we've all been there. I mean, come yeah. on. Who among us did not Sorry. know a whole lot about a whole lot in seventh grade, please. Yeah. 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 I mean, even back in my generation, I knew people that were having sex in seventh grade, you know, in sixth grade, I knew people that were having sex. And yet we yeah, don't want to. I mean, people do also. And, and these days, please, people are doing a whole lot by a whole oh, yeah. lot very, very yeah. much. Yeah, so than yeah. I was, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent. I yeah, we're not we're not here to judge uh, late bloomers. So anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> one thing I do remember you mentioning, which I this was actually news to me um, about Kerouac, I believe it was that you said had copied works uh, from other authors. Yeah, it was uh, Hunter S. Thompson. 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 Yeah. Shane had taken a picture that was very uh, Hunter S. Thompson-esque. Yeah, yeah. That's how this but, conversation came up, but continue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was watching, I love Hunter S. Thompson's writing. Uh, I, I do believe he is, he, is, he is a wildly poetic author. He doesn't, really, he doesn't write poetry, you know, he writes gonzo journalism, but, uh, but it's, it's absolutely- Literature can be incredibly poetic. One of my biggest examples of that is Lolita. <laughs> like that, like the, the beginning, pages of that is straight poetry <laughs> yes yes yeah it's just gorgeous so what hunter s thompson did he didn't he didn't necessarily like you know do the you know i'm gonna get a bachelor's in english and take writing classes and stuff you know so what he did is his hero authors like one was hemingway another was eugene o'neill uh he would transcribe whole books uh just so he could kind of learn the rhythm that they would get into or learn you know like their own style and whatnot and then and after he did that with a number of, of his favorite authors, it, it kind of gelled into his own style, which if you ever read Hunter S. Thompson, he has a very discernible style. You know, yes. like if you yes. <laughs> if you are remotely exposed to it, the next time you see his words, you're going to go, that's Hunter S. Thompson, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I just thought that was brilliant because, again, like, you know, I, I straddle this line of being in academia where, you know, part of me, I, I mean, not part of me, I love teaching. But you don't need to go to school to be a writer, you know. You don't need to, you know. It helps you. It helps you get exposed to different poets. It helps you get exposed to, you know, like different voices and things like that. But you could also accomplish that on your own, like I did before I went to poetry school, which was just going to fucking poetry readings and, you know, and picking up poetry books and talking to my poet friends, you know, and things like that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I thought that was just an absolute brilliant brilliant method to like you know get yourself into the mindset of becoming a writer you know like go ahead and emulate i mean and that's something something he was doing that's what we encourage a lot of writing students to do initially in their early stages is like emulate your heroes and then eventually you'll start to develop your own style you know but it's okay to go ahead and try to emulate who you love and what you love like i had uh, uh adrian matika who is one of my poetry professors at siue who is I mean, he was he was up for the Pulitzer just like three years ago. He's amazing. He's just he wrote a he wrote a book about being from a from a, you know his his mother was white and his father was African American. He wrote a book called Mixology, which oh. was oh it's so oh Fox you need to check that out. It is so good. <laughs> Why and, that's almost me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just oh my god. And uh, he told me about a time when he was in grad school. And his uh, and he he admired. I also admired this poet, Yusuf Komunyaka. He's an African poet who's 
oh, he wrote he wrote a book of poetry called Ding Kai Dao, which is that you know crazy in Viet in Vietnamese. Mm. He was a Vietnam soldier for the states, you know, uh, and uh, and he wrote an entire book of poetry around that his experience in Vietnam, which was wow. just amazing, just I mean disturbing, uh, amazing. Wow. And anyway, uh, after his first after Adrian's first year of being in poetry graduate school, uh, his thesis advisor said. You need to quit reading Yusuf Komunyaka, okay? <laughs> because you're starting to sound you you sound exactly like him, and I've let you and I've let you do it for a year. Let's start to veer off now. You've got him down. Well, now let's you know establish your own style. I had something similar happen to me in graduate school mm. uh, because my one of, this was so weird. My favorite band in the world is the Black Crows, and it, it's largely in part because the lead singer lyricist Chris Robinson. His lyrics are beyond poetic. There, and, and it makes total sense because he got a degree in poetry before he became a musician. Fellow poets, and I'm, yeah, I'm telling you. And uh, <laughs> like, uh, let me give you an example. I feel like the thief that knows he's been framed for stealing the watch but leaving the chain. That's one of his, that's one of his lyrics. I'm just like, oh my God, I just admired him for years. Mm -hmm. So I get into poetry grad school. I find out that one of my first poetry professors used to date him back when he lived in Atlanta, you know, and uh, she made me wait till I graduated to tell me the whole story. But anyway, she quickly recognized that I was very, his name's Chris Robinson, that I was very influenced by Chris Robinson. So about a year and a half into the program, she was like, Shane, you're going to have to quit listening to the Black Crows for a little while. Just know, you know, because I, I just, I got so into his style that I started to, you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I pulled away from it and the influence was there, you know, which I'm very grateful for. But then mm -hmm. I started to explore my own path. So, so that being said, I, I think the past few minutes kind of leading up to this is a great little bit of idea and reference for people who have not gone to the, the house of poetry. <laughs> To, yeah. to learn and expand and find different ways to explore getting inspiration. And they say that there is no new, you know, nothing new under the sun and all of this. Yeah. Um, but once you do that, right, once you find your inspiration and all of this, what would you say is a good method for pulling back so you don't get too much into somebody else's voice to start to divert a little bit and start gleaning your own voice into that? What I always advocate people do you know, uh, that want to start writing in whatever style. Like for me, I, I really desperately want to write a children's book called Green Bean and Dingus about my about my pets. And I want Fox to illustrate it. What I have done is I'm, I'm gathering a shit ton of kids books, you know. And so like any genre that you want to write in, just I, the best advice is to just read insanely deeply into that genre and then start to write, you know, like let those influences kind of work in you, you know, and whatnot. And, uh, but then put, put them away for, for a little while, you know, but at first just go, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say balls deep. But, go, <laughs> 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 but you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> completely immerse yourself and then start to write, you know, and, uh, and all those influences will be there. And then, you know, inevitably you're still going to sound differently than, you know, cause, mm -hmm. and especially if you're writing, there is that adage, uh, write about what you know, or, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, because that's going to be your unique take on poetry, you know? And, uh, um, what you're saying yeah. is to marinate yourself like a meat piece. Yes. Just roll around in it, yes. roll around and then, but then let your, once you've marinated, let yourself sit. Yeah. Let yourself sit for a bit. Let yourself right? sit. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And as a footnote, like a meat piece or like a nice piece of like eggplant or cauliflower. You know, I'm, yes. not, I'm not here to yeah. I'm not here yeah. to force anyone to eat yeah. that they wouldn't normally eat, Shane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if you do like what Adrian did with like Yusuf Komunyaka, if you're just like constantly reading him and then writing at the same time, you're inevitably going to sound exactly like him, you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. But if you like, just like you said, stew in it, stew in it, mm -hmm. stew in it, stew in it, and then put it away for a bit and then allow yourself to write. Or like, you know, for me, I mean, again, there's all kinds of roads to this, you know, there's no, mm -hmm. you know, but like for me, like what I like to do whenever I want to get into a writing, like, you know, regimen is I will read, read, read. And then I will also go hear words, you know, because for me, that's a big part of it is hearing the words. So like, again, the poetry reading stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I let all of those influences kind of, you know, also, I do still advocate that, you know, and this is where it gets a little pretentious, but like having your little journal. Oh. Or your little, or your little little tape recorder. As I, I used to carry myself a little tape recorder, see, and then I'd just talk into it when I had ideas. I don't know why. I'm a lot of people do that with phones now. Yes, now you can do it with those phones, you know. And uh, uh, but you never. That's the thing. Like for me, you know, and and this is a cliche, but it's so true. Like inspiration strikes at the weirdest fucking times, and and a lot of times the most inopportune times where you don't have the time to fully flesh it out. You know, that is true. Like in the shower, I get tons of ideas in the shower. So like what I do, and this sounds ridiculous, but I will keep, I will keep a journal on the, on the top of the toilet so that like, you know, if I get an idea, I'll just dry my arm off and then go ahead and write the idea down on the top of the toilet notebook. That's you know. so smart, though. I've recently been reading a book called Order from Chaos, which is dealing with adult ADD and ADHD. And the idea... Why would you of, be reading something like that? I, because I'm a hot mess. I, why wouldn't I be reading something like that? <laughs> Creating a structure based around what works for you, yes. not what works for other people, yes. but what works for you based on yes. what is easiest. <laughs> if that's where you are getting inspiration, creating a setup that honors that yes. uh, for myself whenever i do a lot of my witchy makeup photos i created a, a place where the backdrop is set up yeah. the light is set up all i yeah. have to do is walk it over there yeah. and walk away because i know that if i have to set it up myself every time i'm not going to do it <laughs> because yeah. that's that's like five steps i'm just not going to take <laughs> that that is great fox because like it's similar to that and i and you know i think you should be proud of me because we've gone how long now and i haven't mentioned the artist wait a decent amount of time. I think that's a record. I think that's a record. Hang on, hang on. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. That Thank is you. good. Thank that is good. Thank you. Thank you. I'm proud that you've mentioned it now, though, because you know I was going to be worried if you hadn't mentioned it at all. <laughs> I was going to be but, concerned. But for for anyone that doesn't know, The Artist's Way is a book by Julie Cameron that has been used for like you know 30 years or something now by various artists. Like pretty much every artist that I've ever admired has used it at some point. But it's just a you know because I typically don't buy into like this is how you are creative. This is the way to be creative. But Julia Cameron has taken a lifetime of like you know learning about these things and developed a very practical set of like loose guidelines for like, you know, nurturing your artist. And one of them is exactly what Fox was just saying is like, you know, you, you honor your creativity by, by, you know, by creating a space where you can be creative, whatever that means to you. She advocates doing this thing called morning pages where every single day you get up and you write three pages nonstop 
of just whatever the hell's in your brain and then go forward from there for the rest of the day. And a lot of times it cleanses the mechanism of your brain. So then when you do decide to write something that you want to keep, you know, rather than journalistic writing, it's cleared of all the ephemera of like bills and worries and all that kind of stuff. Another thing she does is have you go on an artist date with yourself every week where you block off at least two hours in one day of the week to, to do whatever inspires you. Like go to a record store and look through records, take a motorcycle ride, whatever. But just establishing that you are committed to your creativity every day, at least part of the day, I think is a really, really good way to start to approach your own creativity. So much shit gets in the way. It's like that Kubla Khan from, from uh, the romantic poet uh, uh, Coleridge talking about like the, the per, you know, he's, He's in this like poetic reverie where he's like really in the zone, you know, of Kubla Khan. And then all of a sudden this, this person comes and knocks on the door and that knock on the door completely dispels the zone that he was in. You know, we have a lot of door knocking in our lives, you know, and so we have to create that sacred space, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's not, it doesn't make you selfish. You know, I think a lot of times artists feel selfish in that. It doesn't make you selfish. I think it's, it's more selfish not to create because the world needs our creations. Well, and, and even aside from that, self-care has to come before caring for others. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Can I get a witness is what I'm saying there. Um, well, I do have my snake here. So <laughs> he definitely has been listening in on all of this, which for anyone who uh, is, is checking out the Patreon video. I think, I think Beatrix is, uh, is just went ahead and went to sleep. You know, she's you like, know, she, well, she went from one wrist to the other. So now she, <laughs> uh, she, she's doing well, though. She's doing well. She's, she's nice and curled up. So. <laughs> I've watched a number of people sharing their, their writing processes and uh, yes. tips for creative, uh, you know, how, how to get back on the, the writing train and, and things uh-huh. like that. And things that I hear frequently repeated is, you know, establishing a habit, establishing yes. a a routine um and if you we've talked about this before if you don't want to call it a routine call it no. a a ritual call ritual. it uh, you know whatever it is you want to call it but yeah. um a habit of some sort where your your brain and your body is prepared that this is the point in time when this is what is happening you know yeah. but at the same time so that being one end of what you were saying about the artist way, TM, the artist way. Um, <laughs> but but the other part of that being you know this portion of writing when you're just writing to get stuff out um the idea of going into a space where you're writing not for perfection which i i think is a lot of what i tend to fall into you know if i sit down to write and i think to myself i am sitting down to write (laughs) you know i'm sitting down then to write and if i'm writing i want it to be nice if i want it to be nice i'm being very cognizant of what i'm writing i'm thinking about grammar i'm thinking about what the content how it sounds and all this as opposed to just sitting down to write and just let the flow out let all the other minutiae all the thoughts uh, all the chatter and stuff kind of just like flow out and all of this and you know i i remember you mentioning one point too it, it having almost a therapeutic quality as well to kind yeah. of release some of the um the things just in the subconscious as well oh yeah yes and and it, it, again like the the what you just perfectly described is what you know julie cameron is talking about with the morning pages is like getting you know like silencing the sensor 
you know, because like mm-hmm. a lot of times when we start writing, we have that voice like, oh, that sounds like shit. Oh, this is awful. Oh, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have written that line. And then, you know, when you get in that headspace, creativity is really hard to come by, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so if you're able to like remotely turn that sensor off and just, you know, like I think something that that was beneficial for me was looking when you can, because a lot of times you can't find these. But when you can, like finding older drafts of like poets of poetry that you really enjoy and seeing mm. that like even your hero poets started off with drafts that were terrible, <laughs> that were just awful. And just mm-hmm. accepting the fact that initially it's going to be shit and, and just accept it, just get it all down. And then you get to go back in and apply your technique or your, you know, your style or whatnot. That's the fun part is after you got the shit all out, then you mm-hmm. get to go back to it and you start forming it. You know, but if you initially start off with trying to form it right away, sometimes you can get bogged down. I think this is completely transferable to any kind of writing because I use this in English 101 and 102. You know, I'm like, just write those essays, just get them out at, you know, terrible without grammar, the ideas are disjointed, whatever, just get it all down. And then together we can start to form it, you know, and I think that's a, that's just a great way to approach poetry writing in general. Yeah. And I, I don't remember where I heard it. Exercise essentially being try and write the worst thing you can oh. and, and purposefully do the worst thing you can. Bravo. <laughs> and, and then, and then see if you can make it neat. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll use my, uh, that's great. I'll use myself as an example. The poem that I wrote about this crazy cool lady, the first draft, Sounded like a mix of Queens of the Stone Age with a beret wearing teenager with an emo. It, it was just terrible. It was, it was absolutely terrible. But like the, the images that I was using, those worked. They, were, they worked really well. Mm-hmm. Now, so I went back in and started tinkering with those images and tinkering with the metaphors and turned it into something that I am not ashamed of. You know, <laughs> but like initially it was like, whoa, this is pretty bad. But when you start to, when you start to like almost enjoy that, you know, I think that's where some seriously awesome creativity can happen when you're just like, you laugh about it. You know, like I turn it into like a self-deprecating, like this is fucking terrible, but it's really terrible, you know? So if you're going to go for it, go all the way, you know, make it like, uh, make it a Cleveland steamer of a poem. Okay. And then go back and play with it. Sorry about the Cleveland steamer reference. That was a little too far. Never be sorry for a steamer reference. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard a lot of times to create without this sense of your worth being real tied up in it, you know? Yeah. Um, Well, I think it's also painful, especially painful for American artists, right? Yeah. Because our our arts are not subsidized. We don't have a whole lot of respect thrown towards the arts in our country, you know? Mm -hmm. So immediately when you're an artist, you start, you have this kind of like, self not hatred but like you know you're very hard on yourself because mm-hmm. our american society is very hard on artists so you have to battle through that we had talked before the idea of the starving artist is weirdly glamorized it is the book real artists don't starve yeah. um, that starts off talking about i i believe it was i don't remember if it was michelangelo um it was one of the one of the old greats had this persona of like oh starving artist, you know, and um, there were some historical, modern historical accountants. I don't know. It was something where they go through and they study historical finances, which apparently is a thing. 
And they found that he was well paid <laughs> for the work that he did. Artists were well paid for their work. Yes. You know, by, yes. by patrons, by the government, by yes. uh, the church, <laughs> by yeah. lords and ladies and kings and queens, you know, yes. um, and all this sort of thing. There was a, a shift to where all of a sudden I was like, oh, no, 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 no. No, it's glamorous to be bohemian and be yeah. starving and, and living in a hovel with like 30 other people who are all and must suffer right exactly you know where it's like i feel like for myself yeah and, and other artists who kind of gotten a little bit older veered a little bit away from that's like no I, i'd rather eat you know and, yeah. and be able to yeah. pay my bills and have some lights and, and privacy yeah. i had a i had a poetry professor put it to me this way when i was like 26 and i was broke i'm talking like you know couch surfing you know, your bohemian stereotypical mm -hmm. subsisting on cigarettes and coffee and nothing else. And, you know, not a lot of calories in that. No, no, <laughs> nor protein. And I wasn't able to write during that period, you know, and uh, uh, and my poetry professor was just like, you know, a lot of times financial concerns can just absolutely sap your creativity. And I found, I mean, everyone works, starvation. Yes. Yes. Everyone works differently, but I found for myself, I write much better when I'm in a fairly comfortable financial state, you know, mm -hmm. not, I've never, you know, I'm not rich. I'm not, I'm not even comfortable, but you know, comfortable for me, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, to where I don't have to like, you know, feel like I'm going to have to rob someone to pay the rent or whatever, you know, where I, I know my rent is paid. I know my bills are paid. I've got a little bit of extra money to like, you know, buy records and books and stuff. And if I'm in that kind of state, then the creativity is, is really, is really potent. You know, if I'm worried about whether or not I can afford a, a package of ramen and a bit of ranch to go on it, then I'm, I'm, I'm not doing so well. I think one of the the bigger problems with the idea of glamorizing the starving artist is that culturally, puts the idea in the broader brain space of people that, oh, well, you don't have to pay artists. Exactly. Know? Because yeah. that's how they live. They live yeah. like that. They like it. That's yeah. what they want, you know, yeah. Yeah. as opposed to being like, no, no, these are fucking professionals who yeah. are professional human beings and people who expect to get paid yeah. for their work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I've seen even other artists pay, not pay other artists, Mm -hmm. and, and those are the artists that were screaming that artists should be paid. So that mm -hmm. mindset is just ingrained into us. You know, one, mm -hmm. that we don't have to pay our artists. And two, that artists don't really make money anyway. That's, that's why as soon as an Amer a young American, a teenage American tells their parents, I want to be an artist, the first thing that's going to come out of their mouth universally, how are you going to make money? How are you going to make a living? Selling my body. What do you think? No. Exactly. That's that's what OnlyFans was created for, How else for, right? do artists make money? Yeah. OnlyFans. That's what all poets are on now, I think, you know? So, screw it. I mean, hang on. Hang on. What? OnlyFans poetry? I could see that working. <laughs> I could see it working. I told you. I, I think I told you my idea for OnlyFans, right? Because I was just going to get on there and uh, be fully clothed, but in ridiculous costumes and just recite sonnets. I guess before we call here for uh, this edition, what, if any, resources would you suggest or even favorite uh, poets and poetry books or anything like that do you have that you would throw out there for? Okay. For All right. So if you're, if, you're, if you're the kind of poet or budding, burgeoning poet that really likes to, like, mine your own personal experiences, you know, the, con the confessional poetry school that you know, really took off in like the mid 60s with, uh, you've probably heard this name before, Sylvia Plath. 
and Ann Sexton. Essentially, what confessional poetry was is, is, is like is like you know journal type poetry where you are mining your personal experiences and and like essentially the more disturbing the better, you know. And uh, I would definitely I would definitely suggest reading Sylvia Plath and Ann Sexton together. They're they're very similar, but there are some really interesting differences. Like Ann Sexton, cool story about her. She started writing poetry because she was, you know, really struggling mentally and her therapist just randomly suggested, why don't you try, you know, writing poetry whenever you're sad or whatever, you know, and she had no training, not a day of training, not one second of it. And she just had a natural gift, you know, and she was, I mean, to this day in my top three poets of all time. Uh, there's this poem that she I'll give you an example of her crazy melding of styles. You know, uh, there's this poem she wrote called The Addict, you know, because she was addicted to various pills. And there's this poem she wrote called The Addict that is really dealing with some really you know visceral, ugly addiction stuff. But she composed it in a nursery rhyme format, which oddly works you know <laughs> you know like I, I remember i remember one line is fee fi fo fum now i'm borrowed now i'm numb you know like oh, just wow. i mean it's 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 absolutely it's absolutely brilliant now if you're looking for like you know more like you know stream of consciousness first thought best thought kind of poetry i would definitely say start with allen ginsburg's how because that was that's what started that whole trend of you know like instead of instead of you know instead of like you know this, this really complicated, you know, way of writing poetry and whatnot, he would just write, you know, and, and just like use up the whole page, just, you know, uh, it was just like word vomit, but it was brilliant. The best kind. Uh, and uh, if you're, if you're more of a fan of like, say, like, you know, shorter poems that are, are, are more compact, but they still contain a lot, I would say try Charles Simic. He wrote a he wrote a book of poetry about Joseph Cornell, the visual artist who did those shadow boxes. He was like the first person to do those shadow boxes. He wrote a uh, he wrote a book of poetry that uh, there's a poem for each shadow of Joseph Cornell's shadow box called Dime Store Alchemy, which is wow. just brilliant. Uh, Natasha Trethaway. It's something with Ophelia. It's got Ophelia in the title, but it is it is just Hang on, that might be here. Uh, you keep going. I'll, I'll okay. see what my, my friend. The Thank you. Thank say. you. Uh, and then also uh, uh Patricia Smith, who I had mentioned earlier, she's an African-American poet who is just like, like, you know, if you want sucks on the page, that's going to be Patricia Smith. And then also there's uh, Gabrielle Cavacaresi, uh, who, who wrote a, a book of poetry called Apocalyptic Swing. And it is like, it incorporates like weird, like pop culture references with a lot of music and, ah, sorry, I just love Gabrielle, you know, Cavacaresi. I had never seen her. I had never, you know, it was just like her words. And then I found out that she is very much a hardcore lesbian. And so I just, you know, I was a little, I was a little crestfallen, but it's okay. It's okay. I still have her words, you know, because like one, one of my poetry professors who knew her when I said, I have such a crush on her. She was like, she does not play for your team, Shane. So just move on. <laughs> she, just move she's on. not for you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, um, also real quick. Uh, yes. Natasha Trethaway, uh, Baloxophilia. That's it. That's it. Holy. Uh, Balak being with B-E-L-L-O-C-Q. Yes, it is. It is just like this darkly potent poetic universe that she is just a master of. It's just wonderful. Most of my, yeah, most of my heroes are actually. Most of your heroes are ladies. Yes. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, they really that's, are. Yes, that's, that's 
Understand. Yeah. Understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most of, most of my heroes are ladies in pretty much all aspects of my life. But uh, but like as far as you know, like uh, if you have an interest in writing poetry, again, I would just say, you know, one, reach out to anyone that you know that is involved in writing poetry or reading poetry. Get some suggestions. You know, do your own research, whatever, and just read deeply into it. Just read deeply into it first, and then see what happens from there. I love, for me, like my writing process, having people around that I can bounce ideas off of, like Fox, my friend Emily, my friend Spencer, my, you know, like I have a little cadre of, you know, like idea generators that I like to bounce stuff off of. And those, those are people that you don't have to feel nervous about, you know what I mean? So like that sensorial voice doesn't start to like, you know, invade your ear space. You know, like I have a writing accountability friend every week, Emily, and she and I just we go over stuff, but sometimes we'll spend the whole hour of writing accountability each week, just talking about writing. Sometimes we don't even share an actual piece that we're doing, but you don't want to start to incorporate voices that are too critical at first, you know, wait until you've, you've delved into it for a while before you start inviting those voices in. Thank you so, so much for, for joining and talking about just your work, your art, uh, poetry in general, so yes, we covered a lot of ground here. We covered so much say. ground. Yeah. Um, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. And of course, my loves, uh, thank you so much for joining. Uh, whether or not you are just hearing the the dulcet tones of our voices, or whether or not you are joining in as a patron and watching the the video and and all of the weirdness going on therein. <laughs> thank you so much. It is always an absolute pleasure. Real quick before we totally close up. Uh, as a reminder, coming up in July, from July 8th to 11th, I am going to be moderating and actually vending for Witches Fest USA, which is a virtual and live on Saturday for the vending portion of Pagan Witch Fair, which is going on in New York. Uh, so if you are not in New York, it is okay because all of the workshops and all of the talks and everything are going to be completely virtual. There is going to be a whole bunch of amazing speakers uh, that are ranging from a whole bunch of fantastic topics. If you want to find out more and look into getting your tickets, those are going to be at witchesfestusa.org. That's W-I-T-C-H-S. F-E-S-T-U-S-A.org. So check that out. And you can also see me, whether virtually or live, if you happen to be in New York for the vending portion of our program. Uh, and also, 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 I'm super excited to share that if you happen to have both of your vaccination shots. Well, even if you don't, you you still can get this. But um, I did just get done making some vaccinated buttons. Yes, and those are live on the shop. Yes, and they are. They have a skull on them. They are wishy and wonderful, and I am super excited. They are three different sizes. If you go to rocketfox.com/shop, you can check them out. They are there for your pleasure, for your eyeballs. I just bought nine of them this morning and they're amazing. They're phenomenal. And it's a good way to show that you are vaxxed and people won't think you're a damn Republican. So there you go. <laughs> I, well, and you know, I, I still plan to wear my mask anyway, cause I don't need people looking at my face. I just, <laughs> you know, I like to remain mysterious whenever possible. Uh, and if I can, Hey, if I can get the actual lower bones of an actual human being to wear on my face, Hey, 
I'll, there you I'll go. Um, but until that day comes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but otherwise, thank you again so much for joining. It has been a pleasure as always. If you enjoy, please feel free to leave a review, leave some stars wherever it is that you happen to go. Give a follow on Instagram, on Twitter at uh, Fantastically Strange, at Fantastic Odd Pod. You can visit the website at fantasticallystrange.com. Feel free to send me a message if you have any questions, ideas for topics, anything like that, or even just to say hi. I would love to hear from you. I cannot wait to bring you more fantastically strange stuff next time. And until then, take care of yourselves and be safe. Rainbows. Too.